2 Samuel chapter 4. One of my favorite Bible people in the whole wide world is David. I think the reason I love him so much and love learning about him is because, well, he's a man with clay feet. Yet he went from being this little shepherd boy to being a king. He was this radical worshiper of God, yet he was also the consummate warrior fighter for the things of God. At the core of who he was, Scripture is really clear. It says that he was a man after God's own heart. I just want to pick up a little bit of background of his story in 1 Samuel 16 before we get to some other passages. Now, the book of Samuel written by Samuel is really about Samuel and leading into the life of David and King Saul, the first king of Israel. Samuel is a great and fascinating man as a prophet of God. He was strong enough to, to confront King David with the potential of losing his life, yet he was also soft enough to weep over King Saul's rejection of being the king once God said, I've had enough of your disobedience. You're no longer going to be king. There's not many men like him who knows how to roar at the proper time and also weep at the proper time. But that's why God was so able to use Samuel for so many years in the life of, of the nation of Israel. And while Samuel was mourning the failure of Saul and God's rejection of him, he fulfilled God's, uh, to fulfill God's call to lead his people, God speaks to him and he says, get up. Stop mourning. We're moving forward. We're making a transition for the nation. And that transition was this. He says, I have chosen a man and I want you to go anoint him. Set him aside for my calling. And that man was David. God chooses David, this little shepherd boy. Grows up in this family. His dad, he's got all these brothers, and they go through this line and check them out. And the dad doesn't even think enough of David, this little shepherd boy, to bring him in to be looked over by the prophet Samuel. But Samuel says, God's speaking to me. He says, you know something? There's somebody else. You've got another, brother, another son, don't you? And he kind of just, you know, yeah, this little kid out there. He brings him in, and guess what? He is the one that is chosen. Scripture says in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, this is after, this is in the New Testament, after all the stuff that David experienced and went through, it says that he is a man after God's own heart. What a wonderful term of intimacy. You know what that means. When you say somebody is after your, your heart that comes from your ilk, your spirit, that's an intimate statement. Now, if you know anything about the life of David, you know he's not the epitome of, of, of what a man of God would look like. I mean, the truth is, David violated every commandment that God ever made. And he inflicted pain, not only in his own life, but on his family and people around him at different times. And that's what I love about him. God says, I'm still going to choose him. So Samuel comes to him and he says, I found the man. And he begins to pour oil on his head and he anoints him. And that's really what happens in, in uh, 1 Samuel 16. But probably why David understood this calling of God and this, this heart for God, because throughout the Psalms, he was a psalter. He was a, a, a singer. He was a worship man. He said things like this, God, if not for you, Lord, I'd be swallowed up. 
I think that for most of us, for many of us, that's just an important realization to come to. Because when you understand that everything you have is from God, that everything you are and everything that you're becoming and where you are and the authority that you have in your life and all the good things that are part of your life, when you understand they're from God and his grace, man, that makes all the difference in the world. I don't know about you, but it'd be easy for me to say, man, Lord, if it wasn't for you and your touch and your grace upon this guy's life, man, I'd have been swallowed up. I'd have been swallowed up by addiction. I would have been swallowed up by anger. I mean, you fill in the blank. If not for Jesus' grace and touch upon most of our lives, loved ones, we could all say we'd be swallowed up by our hurts, our habits, by our hangups. And if we're in a mess now, we'd be in a much, much bigger mess. When you know and believe that, you know what really happens in your life? You no longer have to look spiffy. You no longer have to try and impress anybody because you really begin to understand at its deepest dimension that guess what? It's what God's doing in your life. It's about his grace. And you begin to like David as a worshiper. You can begin to call out and say things like what David said in the Psalms. He said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be on my mouth. Why does he do that? Well, because David knew where he came from. He knew that he was simply a lowly shepherd, that nobody else had a des- could, could see destiny in him or a dream for him. He was just this little guy that God raises up into a palace to lead God's people. Just recently, I was driving in the car, and that song that we sang this morning, Great Are You, Lord. Um... I was just in my car and kind of was a cartoon time for me where I, you know, I'm not a singer, but I was just so enthralled and so moved by that song, Great Are You, Lord, and, 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 the, and the stanza about filling my lungs with his life and his breath. And I thought, Lord, Lord, thank you so much how you filled my life. You brought my life from this place called a bowl full of crazy growing up. And somehow, in some way, you, you, you did some things in my life. And guess what? I get, to, I get to be a part of a church. I get to be a part of teaching your word. I get to be a part of leading people. That you could take somebody from my background, my experience, and just do something incredible. And then, I'm, and then as, I'm, as I'm just singing this song out and probably people driving by and looking and, and I had my eyes open, but um, <laughs> I thought about this place. I thought, about, you know, I tell you this all the time and I pinch myself and I get up, oh man, I get to Pastor Creekside. What a joy. And I thought, how incredible that God has taken care of this place. That through, through all of these years, through some of the, just the changes and transitions and things that happen, we just keep going under God's grace, under his canopy and banner of love. And you, some of you have been here for a lot of those years and got to experience that. And it just brings me to this place that when I remember where I'm from and what Christ has done, what does it do? It promotes, it leads me to, it will produce worship. And it will begin to touch the deep inner places of your personage and, and your soul. I think that's why David is such a powerful man of God. While God says, I'm going to choose him. Because David, in the midst of his failure, all of his weaknesses, he was able to rise above these things. And what did he do? You'll read the Psalms and hear about his joy, the future hope, 
that he has in the midst of his tragedies and self-inflicted problems and failures. How you, I don't know about you, but I wonder how in the world could this guy still have this intimate heart relationship with God in the midst of all of this stuff? <laughs> Better yet, I think about, wow, how can I, how can you have that relationship with God? And I want to look at a few scenes, a couple of a few vignettes from David's life, this flawed man who most of us can identify with because of his flaws and his imperfections. And to be able to identify with how God will meet with us and be with us at these certain intersections of life that really become transforming and changing. And sometimes it's really hard to, uh, to see God in these places, but I want to challenge you with that. This morning as Christ followers, you know, so you hear all the time, and, and I believe in this, you hear me say it, that we need to be in the word, reading the word, we need to be praying. Because those are critical for your personal growth. Those disciplines are so important for you to walk in to that kind of a disciplined life to be able to grow in the things of Christ. But I believe that as we allow God to meet us at some of these crucial intersections in our lives, as we'll see from the scenes of David's life, it makes for a dynamic context for us to grow in those disciplines, in the places that we are. So I want you to look at the first one. And it's simply this, that God meets us in our loneliness. Uh, go back to Psalms, if you would, or go forward to Psalms chapter 16. Uh, excuse me, Psalm chapter 17. Psalm chapter 17 says this. Starting at verse 6, I will call on you, God. Now, this is a psalm by David. He's on the run, okay? He says, I will call on you, God, because you will answer me. Listen closely to me. Hear what I say. Display the wonders of your faithful love. Savior of all who seek refuge from those who rebel against your right hand. Guard me. And if you like to write in your Bible, underline this. Guard me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who treat me violently, my deadly enemies who surround me. Now, the context of this psalm that we just read is, is as most of, as many of uh, David's psalms are, they're songs that he writes. And they're songs to God. He's on the run out in the wilderness. He's dodging spears from Saul who's on this jealous rampage. Because remember, in 1 Samuel 17, what does David do? He kills, he kills Goliath that everybody was afraid of. And so pretty soon now, people are singing the praises of David. Oh, Saul's done this, but ho, 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 little David, man, he killed the big guy. And so, so Saul gets into this jealous rage and he's trying to track David down because he wants to kill him. And every time he sees him, even when David is sitting there playing his little harp and bringing soothing uh, life to Saul, what does he do? He soon picks up a spear and he throws it at David. He misses him, but he escapes. And so, so Saul's always throwing these spears at David. Isn't it easy to know what to do with spears when people throw them at us? What do we do? Throw them back. Return fire. Give it right back at him. But even as a young man, David knew not to do that. And see, loved ones, that's kind of where we, we have to live to make sure that we're not throwing back the spears of insults and jealousies and revenge. Because when you do that, you know what happens? You simply become another King Saul. But it was in this lonely time David's on the run. It's in this loneliness where David meets God. And you know what God begins to do? He begins to cut the solness out of David's life and heart. 
And when you're in those, these lonely times, you know what? God will begin to cut the soulness out of your life. You know, it's true because we all have some soul in our lives when things don't go our way, don't we? It's so easy to slash and to burn and to throw back the spears that come at us. See, David was in Saul's trusted court, and he could have easily begun to say, what's going on here? Why is he doing this? As a matter of fact, I'm going to get my coalition of people because David had all of these people that would have surrounded him, and he was going to be the eventual king, and he could have said, I'm going to usurp that authority right now. I'm not going to take this. I'm going to take over. But what does David do? He said, you know what? I'm going to wait for God to move. He didn't rally his supporters. He simply left. He didn't complain about the bum deal he got. He left. He didn't return any spears. He took off. But see, Saul people don't do that. They fight back. They talk about the unfairness of it. So David is left in the wilderness. He's surrounded by his enemies. And I love this verse in verse 8. It says, God, it says, guard me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. I love what Corey Tin Boom said. She said that even in the shadow of God's wings, it's awfully dark. And David understood that. But that phrase there, apple of his eye, and there's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's a beautiful term. It literally means little brother, little daughter in the eye. See, what David is trying to communicate here is this powerful and precious intimacy that he had with God. Because when you get really close to someone and you begin to see them eyeball to eyeball and the right is just like, guess what you see? You begin to see a reflection of yourself. And it's in this intimate relationship with Christ, loved ones. It's in the midst of loneliness that will lead you to press into Jesus, to get close to him and ultimately begin to see the reflection of who you are in light of who he is and in his eyes. And when you begin to understand that and you begin to see that reflection, it'll begin to change how you see yourself because you'll see yourself as he sees you. See, we we all struggle to grow and to understand who we are. And you will never be able to do it until you begin to fully understand how Jesus sees you as the lover of your soul not the one that's always complaining about you, not the one that's always upset with you. This is a difficult point, um, but it's it's such an important point, loved ones, for intimacy with Jesus to grow. At times, you need to embrace loneliness and embrace it as a friend, not a foe. Because that's what Jesus did so often in his ministry. It says all the time, it says Jesus got up and what did he do early in the morning? He went to a lonely place. What? To be with his father. Why? So he could get his marching orders. So he could remember who he was. Ah, I am the son of God. I am on a mission. God has a call. God has a purpose for my heart and my life. And it was there that he grew and developed his intimacy with his father. And it's there where you really begin to where he found out, where you and I find out in these kind of alone times with God, that all of these things in our life will never fill us, but only he can fulfill us. Listen, counseling, people say to me all the time, you know, because I know some of you are thinking, well, pastor, you know what? I just, I just need some flesh. I just need someone there that can hug me and talk to me. And I agree with you, we all need that. But, but there is a balance that sometimes we simply just need to get alone 
with the creator of the universe and the lover of our soul. See, in counseling, people will often say to me, Pastor, I just want someone. You don't know how lonely it is. I get it. I really do. Well, Pastor, you've been married for 35 years. You got a, you know, you're an all right guy, but you got a great wife and you seem to be pretty happy because she puts up with you and that's true. But you see, when I grew up, all I ever wanted was a family. I had all my friends and they thought I was the cool one because I didn't have anybody around and I was free to do whatever. But growing up, I had this deep insatiable desire that God, I just want a family. You know what? When I was about 17, I finally got one. And I wasn't all that happy. You know why? Because there was still something in me that wasn't fulfilled. And it was about that time when my dad was about ready to go through a third divorce that they end up going to this church. It was called Portland First Church of the Open Bible. And over time, I begin to see and understand that only Jesus is the one who will ultimately fulfill me. Hear me. There's no person. There is no possession. There's no profession that will ever fulfill the deep longings of your soul. And that's what David learned here, that I am, he was, you are the apple of God's eye. And when you connect with him and grow with him in intimacy, guess what? You'll begin to see who you are and your need for him. I believe that's why in our culture, and our society, it is so busy and so frantic. We are so uncomfortable, aren't we, with white space. We're so uncomfortable when there's no noise around. We get into the car and what do we do? We turn on the music or the radio or the talk shows. We go home. Some of us, maybe we don't have very interesting jobs and we don't like it. So what do we do? We get home, we plop on the TV and we watch this endless run of TV shows where we get to vicariously live through all of these people that have no embarrassment and they show everything of their life on TV for millions to view and we kind of get into it. Now, I know I do too a little bit. I told you about the bachelor or the bachelorette last week, but it was only because of Trina. Okay. It's not, I'm not part of that, but you know what? That's what we do loved ones. There's so many things and so much noise and so much activity that keeps us from taking time to allow God's spirit to get us away to a lonely place, to a quiet place to begin to speak to us. And I'm convinced that in the season ahead, God wants to do that and touch each one of your lives. Because some of you are wondering, what am I doing? Where am I going? But you're looking in all the wrong places. Get alone. Get away with Jesus and see yourself in his eyes, through his eyes. The second scene I want you to see is found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Because God not only is going to meet us in our loneliness, but he's going to meet us in our, he's going to meet us in our joy and our worship. Listen to this. Uh, start at 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 12. It says, It was reported to King David that the Lord had blessed Obed-Edom's family and all that belonged to them because of the ark of God. So David went and he had the ark of God brought up from Obed-Edom's house to the city of David, which was Jerusalem. 
And guess what happened? When it came, they did it with rejoicing. Understand that the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, was literally God's presence to his people. So they had missed his presence for this season of time while the Philistines had it, and then it ended up at Obed-Edom. It says, when those who were carrying the Ark of the Lord advanced six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fatted calf. This is all about worship, loved ones. Now notice verse 14, I love this. Here's this warrior man, he's a king. And it says, David was dancing, kind of, kind of embarrassed, a little, just kind of lightly. No, it says, David was dancing with all his might before the Lord. He was wearing a linen ephod. Now, nobody, anybody know what an ephod is? Okay, I'll just tell you, it's underwear. Yeah, it's underwear. This king, this king of Israel, this king that God appointed, he dumps all of his regal robes, and he's, he's, he's in such a celebrative mood, he says, I'm going to worship in my undies. <laughs> now, just, just hear me. I told you last week about um, snake salvation, that we'll never do snakes here, and I guarantee you I will never worship in my underwear. <laughs> even, though, even though I've got a verse for it, Okay. So he's in his undies. And they're, you know, more like boxers and stuff like that. Verse 15. So he and the whole house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sound of the ram's horn. And as the ark of the Lord, the presence of God was entering the city of David, Jerusalem. Saul's daughter, who was David's wife, Michal, looked down from the window and saw King David leaping and dancing and singing before his Lord. And it says she despised him in her heart. Wow. Here's this guy that's so open to his God and so intimately in love with him that he just doesn't care. Listen to what it says if you scoot down to verse 21. I love these words. David replied to Michael, you know what? I was dancing before the Lord who chose me over your father, and his whole family to appoint me to rule over God's people of Israel. He has a great understanding of whose people they are. It's not his, it's God's. Great humility in him. And listen, listen to what he says. He says, I will celebrate before the Lord and I will humble myself even more to the point he says, I'm gonna hum- I'll humiliate myself. <coughs> and he says, I will be honored by the slave girls you spoke about. Get this. And Saul's daughter, Michael, had no children to the day of her death. She was barren from that time on. So see, God comes to meet us, loved ones, in our joy and in our worship. We need to stop running from our loneliness and and meet God there and see him to set us free to experience the great joy and worship of life. David, he's the king now. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence. It held the Ten Commandments, God's word at that time, for them. And he was to bring it back. He brought it back from the Philistines, from the place of Obed-Edom. And David decided to bring back the Ark. And notice his response. It was just a simple, it was an outrageous party. Fun, laughter, dancing. The point, when you say yes to Jesus, guess what? You have the right. You almost have the responsibility to experience the joy and laughter and to be a person that experiences that and shares it. And people begin to see it where it just kind of begins to bleed out of your life. Why? 
we know the ending. We win. It doesn't matter what happens. No matter what, we can laugh and experience joy. I'm not talking about giddiness and silliness because that's what the world does. They laugh and they have at the absurdness of, of what we do and all the eternal things with which we believe in. But we just get to sit back. We don't need to argue. We know the end. We just get to laugh and enjoy it. See, when you have a relationship and a growing heart for Jesus, it simply gives us permission to laugh and to rejoice more. Proverbs says it this way, a merry heart doeth good. See, too many haven't heard that in church. And I believe that joy and laughter can be one of the highest expressions of faith that we ever exhibit in here and out there to laugh and to worship through the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yesterday, we just had a precious memorial service here for many of you know, um, Kelly Grisham, who uh, in her 40s just uh, succumbed to cancer. I was so moved as I was just sitting right here because her brother put together these just wonderful videos of her. She knew her time was limited, so he did these videotapes where she was just talking. And uh, he put together a couple of those. You know what was so amazing? I mean, she knew her time was short, short, short. But you watch her talking, and you know what she's doing? She's laughing. She's telling stories that brought laughter to everybody else. There was joy. You could see the joy in her visage. You could see it in her eyes. You could hear it in her voice. Why? Because she knows Jesus. Because she knew that cancer wouldn't have the final word. She knew God does. And she had this faith and this joy that only someone who knows it's going to get better can exhibit and share when they're facing their end here. It was powerful. See, loved ones, it's so easy for us to get a skewed picture of God, who the Bible says in Romans is our Abba Father. Let's show you a picture here of, uh, you can't really, it's hard to see, but this was many, 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 many years ago. You can see this little boy in that little picture there. See his little kind of uh, cherub face sticking out? That's our oldest son, Joel. He was probably three or four years old. I had just worked my tail off, raking all these leaves. And all of a sudden, he comes running out, and he jumps in them, and he starts just scattering them everywhere. And my first thought was, what? A little twerp? I just, you know, man, I'm, I'm sweating, and I've had to work like crazy. And then I saw this, he just kind of did that, and I said, I had to go get the picture, and so I took the picture. Well, what you don't see is that after I took the picture, I set the camera aside and dove in with him, and we just started just throwing leaves all over again, and then I taught him how to rake. And uh, <clears throat> so there's, there's a method to my madness. But see, I'm not going to yell at him for messing up my hard work because I love that little guy. I love that big guy today who's 30 now and much bigger than I am. Can I tell you something? That's the picture of our father. See, so often we make these messes and we know it and and we live with it. But he says, you know something? I'm going to jump in that mess with you and we're going to clean it up and we're going to make it better. And sometimes, loved ones, people just got to hear that. Because when you know that, when you understand that, when you begin to see yourself in God's eyes, 
It just, it, it just makes life so much better. And to know that he'll meet us in our joy and in our worship. It's such a key piece of the puzzle for our life and our existence. I uh, had a birthday a few weeks ago. And you know I talk a lot about road rage and all of you that get really mad at people and honk. And some of you say, well, you know, Pastor, that's kind of disingenuous because you, your commute's only 300 yards. So you, you, you really don't know about road rage. And yeah, probably. But um, so because I talk a lot and tell you to quit doing it all the time, um, uh, some friends in church, they got me this road rage reliever. So what you do is you just squeeze it. Put my mic. Well, this one, yeah. See? <laughs> That's to remind you what not to do. Now, now this is really cute. I, I don't have road rage, so I just kind of use it in my office when I'm thinking about you. And I... <laughs> I just think of Vos, yeah. Oh. But it's really great. You know, some, some of us really need some, something like this, you know, just to remember, to laugh. I'm learning from my own life that healthy people laugh. And you know what? Most importantly, we're able to laugh at ourselves because Christ has given us the joy of laughter. And Trina has this wonderful way. I love listening. When I'm up working in my office at home, it's not unusual for Trina to be watching one of those shows I talked about earlier. And um, well, you know what I love about when she does it? She's got this incredible laugh that when I hear her laugh at some of the corniest things that I just go, it, it, it brings joy to me. She has this incredible capacity to kind of knock me on the head and said, you're too serious, you're too busy, and you think you're too important. Lighten the load. And I think we need that because you know what? Jesus wants us to live with joy here so we can share it out there. C.S. Lewis said it really well. He said there's too much solemnity and intensity in dealing with sacred matters. There's too much speaking in holy tones. The tragic loss in all this pious gamesmanship is to the individual who begins to feel that in the midst of all the religious razzle and dazzle, he cannot get through to the Lord himself because it's so pious. Joy is more than comic relief, more than earthly pleasure. And to the Christ follower believer, it's more than what we call happiness. Joy is the enjoyment of Christ and the good things that come from his hands. And my favorite quote, joy is the serious business of heaven. See, loved ones, without joy in worship, know what happens. See, when you start looking down on worship, when you start looking down at people who can just run around in their undies and worship God, you know what ends up happening? You're going to have a barren soul. And pretty soon you're going to wonder why the inner part of your life dries up. And when you come to a time on Sunday morning when worship is taking place, you're looking around and going, are you kidding me? What the, are you kidding me? Look at these people. But when you begin to meet God, the lover of your soul, in the midst of worship and joy, then you just become more and more expressive.
And guess what? You'll laugh more and you'll love more. And you'll experience the love of Christ more. The last scene I want you to notice is that, that God meets us in our kindness. Second Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. I'll, I'm going to read it, then I'll give you the, the context. Second Samuel 4, 4 says this, Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. What was the report? The report was that his daddy and grandfather were killed. So his nurse picked him up and he fled. But as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. If you go over to chapter 9, the story of 2 Samuel. The story of Mephibosheth continues. David was asked, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family that I can show, get this, kindness to? Because of Jonathan, remember Jonathan and David, they were best friends, which is a story all in itself because Jonathan humbled himself. He could have been, the, he was the king, he was Saul's, the king's son and would have been next in line. But he said, no, I see God's touch upon your life and said, I, I, I defer to you, David. And they became best friends. But there was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba and they summoned him to David and, the, and they said to the king, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that what? I can show kindness of God to. Great picture of Jesus, who, who Saul said, it's the kindness of God through Jesus that leads us to repentance. Well, Ziba said to the king, there's still Jonathan's son who's lame in both feet. Well, the king says, where is he? Ziba asked the king, you'll find him in Lodibar at the house of Makar, the son of, of Amiel. So King David had him brought from the house of Makar, the son of Omiel, in Lodibar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, bowed down to the ground, and paid homage. David said to Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness because of your father Jonathan I will restore to you all that your all of your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table Mephibosheth bowed down and he said what is your servant that you would take an interest in a dead dog like me see the background in chapter 4 what was happening the Philistines attacked God's people King Saul was still king at the time but they killed Saul and then they killed Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan. This got back to the nurse that was taking care of this little child. And so she's running. He already had bad feet, but she dropped him. And it seems from the text that it made it worse. Because she knew that as soon as they killed uh, King Saul and then his son, Jonathan, he was next. Because the standard operating procedures of that culture was simply this, you kill everybody in the family so that nobody would rise up and take revenge or assert their authority to the place of the throne. So now you come to 2 Samuel 9, you see that Mephibosheth is the grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan. He was literally the legal heir to the throne of Israel that David was on. So for David, this would have been the last person that he wanted to bring into the palace. Because this young man could have asserted his authority and established a coalition of people to rebel. You know why you can do that? Because you know the Lord and you know who you are in the Lord. And David knew who he was. 
And he also knew that God had appointed him for that place. See, it's so important, loved ones, that as you grow in your intimacy with Christ, that one of the ways that God will always meet you is when you touch and reach out to the Mephibosheth of life. And David was able to graciously do that because of his walk with God, his confidence in calling from God. Because see, Mephibosheth, by this time in his life, he should have been a prince. He should have been farther along than he was, and he definitely should have been stronger than he was. But he had a similar story of so many. What's that? He was dropped. Has that ever happened to you? In a time in your life when there was somebody around you that you trusted, you were in a vulnerable place and you were simply dropped. So often we feel it, you know, where you just get up, dust yourself off and keep going. But there are times, isn't there? And Mephibosheth is a picture of one of those when you're young and you're vulnerable and you literally get dropped by the people around you and it significantly imprints your life. Now hear me. We're imprinted by our past, but we don't have to be tethered to it if we're walking in intimacy with and living in the redemptive flow of Christ's life and grace for us. You don't have to be a victim. You can be a victor. But the problem is, is if we don't realize that and if we don't live and grow in this intimacy with the God of the universe who so loves us, who so wants to lead us out of those things, we'll begin to, well, live in denial. And we'll not face some of those issues of our inner soul that we need Jesus Christ to work through. See, Mephibosheth was dropped as a child. And I'll state the obvious. Our world is full and filled with crippled and hurt people. Isn't it interesting that the Bible even has the word for it? That all humanity is under the fall of God? We've all been dropped. We've all been wounded and ravaged by this issue, this thing called sin. And it's interesting because Mephibosheth's name literally means to speak shamefully of. And we see so many people in the world that they really can't lift their head. We talk about this quite often, that God is the lifter of our head because so many people have their head down because of shame and things of their past that have never been reconciled through the reconciliation and life of Jesus Christ. I've learned over the years in counseling how important it is for every person to take responsibility for what we do. But you know what the key next step is? I can't tell you how many people don't know why they do what they do. And that's where the disconnect so often happens in our walk with God because we get tired of of the same old patterns because we haven't learned how to allow Jesus to come through the presence and power of his spirit to begin to bring change and to repent and to acknowledge those weak areas of our lives. And so we stay in this broken, dropped place. And we live in all this craziness that we can't figure out. And then we live in the shame of what we've done in our lives, to our lives, to our families, and to the people around us. And guess what? We get stuck there. Mephibosheth, you know where he lived? He lived in Lodibar. I love that name. 
Where are you from? Uh, I'm from this little outpost called Lodibar. Really? What a sweet little place. Well, you know what Lodibar actually means? It means no pasture. It means it's a dry, dirty, desolate. Have you ever been there? Have you ever lived there in your life? Maybe not a literal Lodibar, but maybe just in a dry, desolate place. Maybe some of you are there today. You have the potential to be a prince or a princess, but you're stuck in Lodibar. How do you get out? How do you get out from that? Well, the same way that Mephibosheth did. You wait for a king to come get you, to call for you, to summon you, to lead you out. Because many of you sitting in this room today, you know that's happened. The Prince of Peace. Jesus, the King of Kings, called your name. And some of us are in this wonderful, intimate journey with him where our lives, our inner soul, our things are being changed and transformed because of this King, because he called our name. And I want to remind some of you, if you're in this dark place today, the king still calls you. See, in the Gospels, Jesus, he sends out his disciples in Matthew 10. And what does he say? He says, listen, team, leave your gold cards at home. No beamer chariots. I just want you to walk, take a stick and Take your clothes, and I want you to go be a blessing to people. I don't want you to expect to be blessed, and I don't want you to expect and receive anything. You go out there and be a blessing. See, if you want to be a person after God's heart, be a person of compassion and kindness, looking to help the Mephibosheths of the world by how? Well, giving them hope, giving them Jesus, be a person of joy and worship because you've been alone with the king. See, where does your authority come from? Where does my authority come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. See, David knew that because he was called by the king to be a king. He, Paul in the New Testament, he said this. He, says, he said he was talking to this church, the, the church at Corinth, that he was reprimanding, and he says, I come to you as a father. God has given me authority not to beat you down, but to build you up. And see, loved ones, that's our call. We're not here to beat people down. We're here to love people with the grace of God and to bless them. That's what David did. That's why he called and went after Mephibosheth. I read this story about uh, these preachers that got together. It's a true story. And, and uh, one of the preachers got all these preachers in town together because he wanted to raise some money in their community for the university. He wanted to raise like $25,000. And so they're all seated in this large restaurant on this big table. And this guy was one of those preacher, preacher guys. You know, when he got up and when he talked, it was bold and it was deep and it was loud. And so he's going on about all these big things that God wanted to do. If all of these people here, the, the preachers would just get behind him and, and help him raise the money. Well, as he's going on, the, the waitress had come over and said, sir, could you just keep it down a little? I mean, it's kind of loud and disruptive. And he said, sure. So he kind of toned it down for a moment or two and then you know pretty soon he's getting into it again and really going after it. finally this big old hairy guy comes I mean big guy 
rough looking guy, biker type guy. And he comes over and he just starts dropping some, you know, some bad words on him. And he says, that's the biggest bunch of blah, blah, blah I've ever heard. And all you stinking holy Joe preachers, blah, 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 are the same. And he was just getting in his face. Finally, this preacher looks at him and he goes, God, have mercy on your soul, brother. Someday you're going to bow before the Jesus that I'm talking about. And you're going to wish you hadn't said that. So this argument continued and it got more heated and the hairy hairy guy, big guy, he just cursed more and the preacher would threaten him with eternal damnation more and more. Well, so one of the other preachers was sitting there and finally it occurred to him, you know what? All this preacher is doing is playing the same game with a ruffian except he's using religious language to do it and he doesn't really realize that he's simply returning religious violence for personal violence. And so this whole violent thing was just Winning the moment. Finally, this, this hairy, big, swearing, half-drunk guy comes and he clenches his fist. Finally, one of the preachers gets smart and he gets up and he walks over to this guy. And he walks up to the guy and he says, Sir, I am sorry that we disturbed you. It would be my privilege to be able to pay for your drinks right now. Would you let me do that? And this guy kind of <clears throat> chuckles, and, well, you know, and, and he just grabs the bill from his table, and he went and paid for it. And the guy just kind of shaking his head, walked off. Well, what's interesting is the preacher that was causing all the problem looked at him and said, how in the world could you do that? That guy is an unbeliever, an infidel, and you made me look like a coward. And this guy said, The only way anything was going to change is to bring God's peace and kindness to this. And isn't that true, loved ones? See, when you walk with Jesus, you begin to see yourself as Jesus sees you. You begin to do the things that Jesus does. And one of our things about our church, one of our values, is that we simply show simple, ongoing, consistent kindness to the people around us, to our community. We don't have any religious access to grind. We simply want to bring Jesus to people. So here's your challenge. This week, ask yourself this. Where can you be a blesser? Where can you share, begin to share an act of kindness? Probably it should start at home and then go to where you work. There's a lot of broken people out there. There's a lot of people acting out because, you know what, they can't walk straight because they've been dropped and they're broken. I don't, walk, I don't look at Facebook very often, but <laughs> I was in bed last night with Trina and I was looking at one of them and I was reading this guy that, um, that just drives me crazy, but he goes to a church that I know of and everything he says is negative. And he was talking about this place last night where he got something. I won't go into it because somebody could maybe figure it out. But um, everything is negative. And, and, and I, go, I told Trina, I says, if that guy was in my church, I'd go talk to him. I'd say either don't go to our church or don't post that stuff. Because it just, it, it just it didn't have any kindness to it. And loved ones, that's what the people out there need. They need Jesus, but they can't see Jesus if we're these religious bigots that can't love and give grace and joy and worship.
We shoot straight with sin, but we also shoot straight with the grace. So what, where can you do that this week? It's his kindness that leads to repentance. And then look, maybe this, do you, do you need to get away and to be alone with Jesus, to learn of him so you can experience joy with and from him? I challenge you to do that this week. Let's stand together if you would. Just got to relax a little bit, get a little joy, you know. Let's, let's, let's experience the joy of Jesus this week. Get alone with him. Love people. I'm going to stop right there. Amen. You are loved. Have a great day.